name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord Jesus, you are the Son of righteousness with healing in your wings. Enlighten our darkened understanding by your holy word. Enkindle our hearts and mold our wills to walk in faith, love, and hope every day of our lives. Let the light of your gospel shine to the nations that sit in darkness and preserve your church to the day of your glorious coming to judge the living and the dead. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our Bible verse for the week, Romans 6, 6 through 7, it's in the congregation at prayer. It is also on the board here in front. It is verse 6 and 7 of Romans 6, part of the epistle for this morning, St. Paul's in-depth catechesis on the sacrament of holy baptism. Let us speak it together. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Once again, our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. All right. Words are important. Our old man, that is not... Yeah, Joanne is not Steve sitting next to you, okay? It is not bound to um, human language the way we speak from above, or from below. It's from God, and it's theological in orientation. In other words, it doesn't mean, if he were talking to women, he would say, our old woman. You don't find that. It's the old man. Because the reference is to what man? Correct. The reference is to Adam, through whom, theologically, according to the word of God, sin and sin's corruption entered into the world. Okay? So our old man, the Adam within us, the inherited sin, this inherited concupiscence is the Latinist disease, was crucified with him, the him is Jesus. But the body of sin, so... All that sin has done in us might be done away with, okay? So if you imagine, <clears throat> if you crucify someone, they are dead, okay? So it's more than an image here. In Christ's crucifixion, the old Adam, which is the sinful nature, together with the body of sin, that means all of the thoughts, words, and deeds that have come from the old nature, is dead. It has no effect. It cannot condemn you. It doesn't hold sway over you. It doesn't influence you. Now, you would say, but wait a minute. I feel my sin all the time. That's the paradox. This is why in the sermon for this morning, I talked about sin 
in terms of what's at the heart of sin? Unbelief. Unbelief. Which doesn't mean that St. Paul is, is not talking about sins, specific sins, murder, adultery, theft, false witness, idolatry. Of course, he is. But at the heart of all sin is unbelief. So shall we continue in unbelief that grace may abound by no means? Which means that, you know, in our world today, baptism, let me say it this way first, baptism embraces everything that God created and ordered according to his word and said was very good. So if Steve, using this example again, the brunt of all examples, that's why you're here. If Steve decides he needs to transition, you have to understand that this is a rejection of his baptism. This came home to me in a conversation yesterday, and I was thinking about it for hours afterwards. Someone has, and is beginning the process of transitioning, who maybe grew up in the church and was baptized. But they're a baptized child of God. That's true but they're rejecting their baptism. They're rejecting their identity. Because with baptism into Christ, the body of sin with all unbelief, and what is it to transition? It is to say, if Steve were to do that, I am not a man. I'm a woman, or whatever I'm transitioning to. So at the heart of all sin is an unbelief that rejects God's order, God's design. No, Randy, he would not make a good woman. Okay, I, I don't know what you know. But, but, but this, is, this is very important. It's going to tie in with the psalm of the day that we're going to talk about in a moment. The, the church loses its uh, ability to call to repentance if in the proclamation of the gospel it is not preceded by the realities that what God creates and orders is good. And that if you reject what is good, it will lead to destruction. It's the way it works. You can decide, I don't like, I don't like fossil fuels, so I'm going to put sugar water in my gas tank to run my car because that will burn cleaner. It won't work. So a person can decide to do anything they want, but if what they decide to do or what they will to do is contrary to God's word, it brings about disorder and chaos. So what is being crucified with our old man and the body of sin is all manner of unbelief that rejects God's word and order. Conversely then, and so that we should not be slaves of that unbelief, of the disorder. 
He who has died has been freed from the disorder, the unbelief, which doesn't mean you're then free to do whatever you wish. The laws of gravity still hold. I no longer believe in gravity. I've decided to reject this for a different view of the universe, and then you walk off a cliff. Well, your reordering is not going to change the enormity of the splat at the bottom of the cliff. Okay? So there is such a thing as objective truth. And I think we have erred in the church by not emphasizing how creation and salvation are inseparably joined together. Because the salvation in Christ means that he has redeemed and is rescuing the world. We tend to put creation over here and it has nothing to do with salvation over here. And then salvation over here in the gospel is all about embracing in the name of love whatever a person decides or wants to be or to do regardless of God's order. So the Ten Commandments, which were in the Old Testament reading for this morning, they present to us what is objectively true and what God wills to protect. Under the fourth commandment, family, as he ordered it and instituted it. Under the fifth commandment, the sanctity of human life, which can only be created in the family between a man and a woman. And then he protects the gift of marriage under the sixth commandment. That's part of God's ordering. So when one rejects those things, going back to baptism, this is a, as a, and claims to be a Christian, you are rejecting your baptism. You are rejecting the order that God has established and redeemed in Christ. Uh, he who does that is no longer freed from sin, but is rather a slave of sin, a slave of unbelief, and a slave of the disorder that brings about destruction. Let's speak this verse again. Our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin, for he who has died has been freed from sin. And the pious Christian that talked to me about being, you know, this person is a baptized child of God, that's absolutely true. But if, if Ashley were to have renounced everything that you taught her or brought her up to believe, she would be rejecting you as her parents. That doesn't change the reality of your love for her, but there's a breach in that. Okay? Any questions about that? You turn your hymnal to Psalm 19, which is the psalm for the week, and I'll, I'll take... Um, Pastor, you, you don't have the microphone. You do. So Beth is first over here, Beth Berenger, and then Paul Wehrman. It just helps for the, uh, for the recording. I just wanted to clarify, the body of sin, could that be, is that considered then the whole of sin or the physical body? 
the whole of sin, the corpus of sin. Okay. You know? Could you think of it as like the physical body or is that just... Well, uh, in St. Paul's vocabulary, uh, he uses sarks for flesh where he's especially focusing on the corruption of sin. And body is either used as simply a person's body or um, the whole body of Lutheran theology would declare that. I'm not talking about uh, bones and... In a certain sense, you're there's a skeleton and a foundation to the theology, or, you know, in that sense. Okay. Paul. A uh, thought occurred to me regarding the uh, default of our church body uh, in regard to what you were just talking about. I'm talking about the church in general. But. Yeah, okay. That uh, perhaps it was in our church body at any rate, uh, perhaps uh, inspired uh, by gospel reductionism. Yeah, and, and um, you are exactly correct. Paul is referring to the time of the Seminex walkout, uh, 1974, which was preceded by decades and decades of a rethinking about the word of God, the authority of the scriptures, and what the gospel is. And, and gospel reductionism effectively eviscerated the law so that the gospel, instead of being redemption from the law's condemnation, one, and by Christ's obedient, sacrificial death, the not only fulfillment of the law, but actually upholding of the law as good, it was, the law was set aside, so forgiveness, grace of God was simply, never mind, as if the Ten Commandments no longer have any particular jurisdiction, effect, something to teach us, governance. With that became a denial of what's called the third use or function of the law as a guide to the Christians for what is good and right and so forth which we still need because of the problem of sin. So you're absolutely correct. And just a follow-up on what you were just talking about and what Paul was just talking about, there is an excellent series of podcasts on issues, etc., about that entire episode taking place. They've, they've got four so far, and I think there's going to be at least one or two more. Yeah, I've listened to the first three by Dr. Martin Nolan was the first one. Dr. Ken Sherb is the second one. He's the general editor of the book, Randy, which is called, which is called Law, law Life, and the Living God. No, that's the third use of the law one. By oh, Scott I'm sorry, Murray. wrong. The one wrong on one. The, is that what it's called? The Battle for the Bible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's I'm it's a book right. about the events leading up to in the uh, aftermath of a series of articles. Um, Apologize. Yep. So, Dr. Martin Nolan, Dr. Ken Sherb, and then um, Roy Askins, who's the general editor Lutheran of Witness. Lutheran Witness, um, and then um, more to come. More to come. Scott Murray, his I haven't listened to. Yeah. The, the, the comment that I was going to make yeah. before that topic was back when you talked about connection of the creation that often is separated out, it might be interesting, similar to the way there was the movie that was shown about the universe and the design that's in the universe and how understanding, and when you look at it from 
the view of God as the creator, our world looks different. Perhaps there would be the opportunity to look for similar material around biology and genetics. Yeah, I think uh, that would be fruitful. He's talking about the uh, film, and Cindy has a question. Oh, Cindy has a question. Uh, I should have given Wait a minute, wait a minute. He's talking about the, um, the documentary, and then there's a book uh, by the same title called The Privileged Planet. Okay. I should have given issues, et cetera, a footnote. Yeah, you of all people to, to have neglected. I'm going to report you to Jeff Schwartz. Okay. Um, good. Now, Cindy? Um, my only thought was when we are in the world and we are going to see this more and more people um, rejecting baptism, changing sex, I think it's only going to get be, become more prevalent. If we embrace that, I feel like then we are embracing the breaking of commandments. Yes. Meaning yes. that if we say, well, love is love, and so for the sake of love, I have a good friend, or not a good friend, but I have a friend who I was confirmed with in the church. She has transitioned, so now she's a man. And <clears throat> if I... Now she's a woman who claims to be a man. Yes, she is a woman who claims to be a man. If I embraced her as a man, then I am then embracing that, for a better word, theology of wokeism. Um, so I feel like it will be important going forward to know how to react in true love Yeah, I hope to, to this fall, I hope to actually publish this in advance so that we can everybody can know about discussing it. How do you, if you're invited to the wedding of, what do you do? How do you respond? Um, for our purposes this morning, I mean, the, I just want to leave it where, we're, where we have it so we can go on to continue what is planned. But the church cannot, there's, um, the church cannot invite to the altar those who embrace the theology behind transitioning out of what you are. Because to do so is a denial of baptism, is a denial of God's order, and then as such, it is a denial of the gospel of Christ. Jim. Luther in the Confessions defines repentance as just returning to our baptism. Yeah. So I just want you to see baptism, since, since Christ is the content of, of baptism, he who has kept the whole will and law of God for you, but also kind of ratified, if you will, that the law is good. He doesn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill. That's what he said. I have not come to destroy or abolish the law and the gospel for the day, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. He's talking about the entirety of the Old Testament, both commands and promises. But I've not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Now, the fulfilling of it doesn't mean that we don't continue to live according to the order uh, that is set forth in God's word that is good. So that leads to the Psalm 19. It's the psalm for the week. We prayed it after the Old Testament reading, after hearing the law given uh, in the Ten Commandments. I, I'd like to show you some things in here. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech from the sky above, 
from the heavens above, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Now, Paul, I think here's an example of some bordering on gospel reductionism here, where these verses about the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork are used to say, well, that doesn't actually refer to the sky above or to the heavens above, but rather it is a spiritualizing of these words and it refers to how the gospel goes out everywhere. Well, the gospel goes out everywhere, but with all due respect, Psalm 19 actually is talking about creation and about how things work. And going back to the documentary um, on intelligent design that Randy was mentioning, Privileged Planet, what that documentary, even without being composed by Christians, was simply observing that what the heavens and the sky above are proclaiming and the location of our planet in our solar system, in our universe, is beyond accidental, but also proclaims the, the glory of God, his handiwork. Uh, when you look at, uh, we, it's been a number of years since we showed it here, but uh, what, what stunned me is not where the documentary went with its conclusion about intelligent design. There has to be intelligence behind uh, the design of our privileged planet in, in the solar system and universe. But I saw in it all of these connections to theology, like baptism, the significance of water for carbon-based life is absolutely foundational. You got the Spirit of God hovering over the surface of the water at creation, and then you go and make disciples with water baptizing them. So a, a number of other interesting things like that. But back to the idea of order. So verse 4, their measuring line goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Now the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. It doesn't mean the sun is a bridegroom or the action that we observe is necessarily um, according to the laws of, of the physics of the solar system. By that I mean, well, everybody knows that the earth revolves around the sun, not the sun coming up. And That's not, the, the, the scriptures are not denying that here. But from our perspective, it appears as if we are on earth at the center. And it appears that way, even though the earth revolves around the sun, because that's what God wants us to understand about our position in the universe as being created in his image and likeness. But a measuring line, that is a reference to a plumb line. No, um, a lot of things can deceive us. You know, when we look at something, is that straight? Looks straight to me. And then we put a level up to it and find out it isn't straight at all. Those of you who have bought houses and are trying to do things in your house, maybe a remodel, you keep you're pulling your hair out you know, because it's not plumb, it's not true, and so forth. 
But what God does in the creation is well ordered. And um, in the sky above, the heavens above, he has set the sun and the moon and the stars, and the sun is like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So through verse 6, you get this reference to creation, the skies above, the significance of the sun for us. And then verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. Now notice it doesn't say the laws of the Lord are perfect, but the law of the Lord is perfect. And that's significant because we can speak about laws, and there's nothing wrong with that. We can speak about commandments with an S. There's nothing wrong with that. However, they're not capricious. They're not arbitrary. But rather, the law of the Lord is one composite organic whole which gives order, direction, purpose, significance, meaning, interpretation, value, life to all that exists. So the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So you got the law and the testimony. And think about the gospel promises in the testimony of the Lord. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. These are all references to the word of God, law, testimony, precepts, commandment. And look at what they are and what they do. They're perfect, they're sure, they're simple, they enlighten. They are a cause for rejoicing. The fear of the Lord is... So that means that when you live congruently with God's word, things go well. You know, uh, this rejection of the third function of the law as that which guides us is really sinister and evil we need no guide. I get it. I get it. We're Christians now. The blood of Christ has set us free and we live by grace. However, because of the problem of sin, we still need the guidance, which is objectively true. Like mom and dad who give guidance to their children. Do this. Don't do that. Sometimes it's appropriate to explain why. Sometimes there's not time for that, and they need to learn to believe it's good because I said so. So that's partly the third function of the law. Does, that, does, does a child obeying that guidance cause mom and dad to love them? Absolutely not. No more than it causes God to love us if we walk in the ways of his commandments. But does it go better if Johnny takes out the garbage and doesn't grumble and complain to mom and dad? Does it go better for him if he does those chores without being asked? Girak sons? <laughs> does it put a smile on mom and dad's face? No, the, okay, there's the third function of the law practically put out there in, in the Christian home. Okay? 
All right, so back, back to the text here then. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The just decrees of the Lord are true and altogether righteous. And that includes, it doesn't matter what the decree is, in Genesis chapter 1, the decrees of the Lord which called the universe into existence, that made the plants to grow and the animals to copulate and produce young, okay, whether it's those commands which we're still enjoying the fruit of in the world today, or the decrees of the Lord, Shari, you are righteous for Jesus' sake. All of those decrees are, what does the text say? True. True. Just. Perfect. Philip. Stand up. Sit down. Oh, I... <laughs> Uh, that reminds me of Jesus and the paralytic. What's easier to say? The, the word is effective either way, but the, your sins are forgiven and rise, take up your bed. Yeah, both home. are impossible for us, but God's word is performative speech. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, more to be desired are they, all of the decrees of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the law of the Lord, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb, which is also what we have erred in, Paul, in neglecting to talk about the goodness of being a man. Instead, most of you males in this room, you know you're suffering from toxic masculinity, <laughs> which is a, a derogatory term which means that simply the fact that you've got testosterone flowing through your veins and that you um, shoulder burdens and carry sorrows, that somehow this is, you know, misogynistic. We need to rather hold up the idea that being a man is good, and so is being a woman. I like women. They're good because they're created by God. And it's a complementary gift, this maleness and femaleness. The two complement each other. How would it be, boys, if both of your parents were identical to your father in disposition, makeup, way of speaking? Quite boring. Quite boring? <laughs> <laughs> or if both were like your mom. By the way, even in the homosexual unions, invariably, one of the partners, whether it's two men or two women, one of the partners takes on the masculine role and the other takes on the feminine role. You can't get away from God's design, even in perversion. Okay? All right. Um, so the honeycomb here, to, to live in God's order and design, it's not always easy. But finally, at the end of the day, when you've worked hard at the sweat of your brow, you follow the guidance of mom and dad. It's a sweet life. Unless you reject it in unbelief. They don't know what they're talking about. I'm tired of living with mom and dad. Okay, then the Bible would say, and Luther would say, then you're going to suffer the consequences of that. And that's what happens. When you throw off the honor and the respect owed to your father and mother, when family is then destroyed, just look at the streets of our city. We made the case. 
The breakdown of the family that God desired to protect under the fourth commandment has led to all manner of chaos. And life ain't sweet. But when you live in, by faith, in God's order and design, redeemed by the blood of Christ and still following in his way, it is sweet. And there's satisfaction. So when a man is actually allowed to be a man and do what God has given him to do, and the woman to be a woman and to receive the love of her man, that's actually a source of contentment for both. Don't, well, let me say this first, by the way. The world lies to you, okay? If that's a revelation, now at least you know. Yes, uh, Randy, speak up. He's, he's trying to take notes. It reminded me earlier, and you saying it again, I just had to say it. It reminds me of, which, which uh, point is that we don't come speaking cleverly devised yeah. fables. Yeah, the world Peter, is, we did the, not follow cunningly devised fables when we no, made known to you the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. But we're all accustomed to being in the world, and we know everything of the world is a cleverly devised fable. Therefore, it's sometimes difficult to set aside the common sense that what anybody's telling you, ultimately at some level, if it's not of God, if it's not of the Bible, it ends up falling apart right. eventually. And, yeah, and, and um, when we were doing the St. Peter option, remember I warned you, one of the things of, uh, in, in a discussion with someone, accepting their premise can be the beginning of the loss of the conversation and debate. So listen carefully to premises before you simply embrace them. And it is the way of the evil one, because this is all the doctrine of demons, it's the way of the evil one, and the, you see this in cults like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, to take an element of the truth that you believe in, like the gospel is the message of God's love, and then draw a conclusion from that which is not based on the gospel or the right understanding of God's love, and to lead you in a different direction. So if you, if you embrace the premise and accept the premise, you've lost the discussion and the debate before you've even started. Okay, so by them, by the, by the word of God, the precepts, the testimonies, and so forth, your servant is warned. Now, there is the third function of the law again. God's word warns us. I mean, you don't have to articulate out loud, but think to yourself, what could I do in my life, in my marriage, in my family, in the workplace, which would cause me to lose my marriage, destroy my family, lose my job? Now, you don't have to answer, but in keeping them, there is great reward. So by them, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So I know that if I never uh, buy drugs and do drugs and do fentanyl or whatever, I'm not going to suffer the consequences of doing that. It's impossible because I don't do it. it. You follow? So there's great reward. So the word of God is warning us, both the law and the gospel, the commands and the promises, the laws and the testimonies. So who can discern his errors? Here again is one of the third 
uh, purposes of the third function of the law for a Christian, the Christian still has the old man. He may be crucified, but he's like a zombie, you know, crawling out and ex exerting his influence, which means that our reason, our understanding is often clouded, even though we're Christians. The word of God is objectively true. So that becomes an anchor and a weapon against our old Adam, the sins of the flesh, or the lies of the evil one. So who can discern his errors? Only God's word is going to reveal the truth about who I is and who you is. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. There's the petition for forgiveness and to be justified, not only for the sins I know of and have committed and have been brought to a knowledge of, but even that which I am not aware of. So that's a sweet promise. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. What are they? Premeditated, I know in advance, and I determine to do it anyway. Uh, it's a lot less devastating to our conscience when something happens and then in a moment of weakness, oh, you lash out at someone. Okay, you didn't plan. If I go down the road today and someone cuts me off, then I am going to cuss them out. You didn't plan to do that in advance, but it happened. That can still trouble the conscience, but even more devastating to the conscience is premeditated sin by the Christian. I know this is wrong, but I'm gonna do it anyway. I'm gonna to plan to do it. Let them not have dominion over me. Notice there, that would be back into being a slave of sin. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then the conclusion, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So he is the rock and the redeemer of the created order. So I wanted to go through the psalm today because it sits in the congregation at prayer and um, it was inspired by this conversation about being a baptized child of God and what that also means. Okay. Now I want to... Um, in the time that is remaining, take you into Genesis chapter 24. Um, and another thing we're going to do is some of the material I went over with youth group this last year, I am going to bring uh, into Sunday morning Bible class, like the Christian view of courtship and dating and engagement. Um, and one of the things here in these theses that I prepared for them, let me give you some, an ensampling to whet your appetite. Chastity, this is number five, has a positive effect upon our state of being as Christians and our capacity to be faithful both to God and to others with whom we are, have a God-given relationship, members of our family, 
our spouse, our children, our friends. So chastity has a positive effect on being able to be faithful. Conversely, number six, fornication has a negative effect upon our state of being as Christians and upon our capacity to be faithful to God and to others, not only among our family members, spouse, friends, but also in our calling as Christians. So to be able to be faithful as a pastor, chastity is important. The lack of chastity would compromise my ability to do the job, not just because of the scandal brought about, even, even if it were not known. So fornication has a negative effect upon our state of being as Christians. And it fights against the capacity of a person, whoever they are, to be faithful according to God's order, according to God's design. Um, so just two more to whet your appetite. We are called to cultivate healthy friendships with all of our neighbors. Now this is under these theses about courtship and a Christian view of dating and engagement. Cultivating healthy friendships with all of our neighbors, that means whether they are believers or not, what describes what healthy relationships look like? God's word. And then you can go specifically to the Ten Commandments. They describe what love looks like. The positive descriptions in the small catechism of Luther describe what physical love looks like and are helpful in determining what is appropriate or inappropriate, selfless or selfish. You go down all of the positive descriptions, starting with the fourth commandment through to the tenth commandment, you see what love looks like. And what's characteristic, <coughs> among other things, in those positive descriptions is love always has, true love, an element of self-denial, where you're helping and supporting your neighbor in his physical need and not yourself, where you're leading a sexually pure and decent life or a chaste and decent life, or you're encouraging others to be faithful to their spouse within marriage, as opposed to encouraging them to be unfaithful so that they break up and then you can go and get what you want. So friendship is the starting point for exploring those who might be a suitable spouse for Christian marriage. And last week, um, setting up some of this Genesis 24 material, I asked about the legitimacy of marriages. And I asked the question, is an arranged marriage less legitimately a marriage than a marriage that was entered into with romantic love? And the answer to the question is, there is no difference between the legitimacy, because it is God's institution, one. He joins people together, two. And he determines the component parts of marriage, what it is for, what it is to be. And while love is nice, 
And by that, I mean um, the Eros love of physical attraction. It is not what constitutes a legitimate marriage or an illegitimate marriage. Because what we're called to in marriage is, when we say I do, we are actually pledging ourselves to love on a different level, according to God's word, what God calls me to be. So uh, Isaac here is called by God to love the woman who is brought back to him as his wife. And so he acts on that. Okay? And he cultivates love. And what does love look like? You know, it, love has self-sacrifice and service to the bride. That's what it looks like. You know full well that in your own experience as husbands and wives, emotion and what your emotions are doing ebb and flow and go in all kinds of different directions, which can be a wonderful thing, but it also means they are not to be trusted. Okay. Going back to Psalm 19, only the precepts of the Lord by following them is there a cause for rejoicing. Okay, so Abraham was old, well advanced in age, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. So Abraham said to the oldest servant of his house, who ruled over all that he had, please put your hand under my thigh. It's like putting your hand on the Bible and swearing to do something. And I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven, and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. So here is Abraham's acquiescence and observance to marrying within the faith. But you shall go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. And the servant said to him, Perhaps the woman will not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I take your son back to the land from which you came? But Abraham said to him, Beware that you do not take my son back there, lest he want to stay. The Lord God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, that was in the call to Abraham, and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, saying, to your descendants I give this land, he will send his angel before you, angel meaning messenger, and who is an angel but messenger, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. So the fact that a wife is selected from there and then follows the servant to the land of promise indicates then confession of faith and embracing of the promise. In other words, if the wife chosen did not want to, uh, did not come, it would have been a sign of a rejection of the promise. And if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be released from this oath, only do not take my son back there. So notice, is this a forced marriage arrangement? No. No, but it is an arrangement made on the basis of faith and willingness to accept faith, okay, the faith. By the way, you young people do not disdain, so Caleb, if 
your mom and dad suggest a nice Lutheran girl for you as a potential spouse, do not immediately dismiss it. What do they know? Remember the thesis I said, friendship is the starting point of exploring those who might be a suitable spouse for Christian marriage. They've been around. They might know a few things. They also might, through their experience, want you to avoid either pitfalls that they fell into or pitfalls that they've seen other people fall into. Okay? I just picked Caleb at random. <laughs> Alec, don't, okay. <laughs> so the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, for all his master's goods were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made his camels kneel down outside the city by a well of water at evening time, so they were well trained at the zoo, uh, the time when women go out to draw water. Then he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, please give me success this day, and show kindness to my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Now let it be that the young woman to whom I say, please let down your pitcher that I may drink, and she says, drink, and I will also give your camels a drink, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. And by this I will know that you have shown kindness to my master. And it happened before he had finished speaking that behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her pitcher on her shoulder. Now, what does that action already tell us about Rebekah? I want you to, this is more obvious, but we never think about these things. This is the time when the women go out to water, and here Rebekah daughter of her father, comes out in waters. What does that teach us about her? She's following her vocation. She's honoring her father. She's also not coming at a time when the women of the night might come. Okay? But at an appropriate time, which indicates she is a woman of virtue. Now, the young woman was very beautiful to behold. So it doesn't mean you have to, your wife has to be ugly, Caleb. <laughs> a virgin. No man had known her. And she went down to the well, filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, please, let me drink a little water from your pitcher. So she said, drink, my lord. Then she hastened and let her pitcher down to her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. Okay, what does that now teach us about Rebecca? What's that? She's loving her neighbor, the generosity of spirit. That's correct. Then she hastened, which I would, you know, that's good. So when you're, Alec, when you bring someone home, you know, we want to see these virtues. That's what your mom and dad want to see. Yeah. You know, will she water the camels or not? 
Then she hastened and emptied her pitcher into the trough, ran back to the well to draw water, and drew for all his camels. And the man, wondering at her, remained silent, so as to know whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. Now, what I want you to see here is this is not simply Russian roulette, the luck of the draw, the casting of lots, but Rebecca is demonstrating the kinds of virtues that are desirable in a wife for Isaac. And that's not to be disdained. So it was when the camels had finished drinking that the man took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her wrists weighing 10 shekels of gold and said, whose daughter are you? Tell me, please, is there room in your father's house for us to lodge? So she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, Milcah's son, whom she bore to Nahor. Moreover, she said to him, we have both straw and feed enough and room to lodge. So she doesn't spurn the servant. Then the man bowed down his head and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his mercy and his truth toward my master. As for me, being on the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren. So the young woman ran and told those of her mother's house these things. And this is where we will end it until I return, not next Sunday, and not the Sunday after that because I'm at the convention, but the Sunday after that. We are having church services, but I have, <laughs> and, and we will have Bible class. So don't determine not to show up because I said I'm not going to be here. Okay. Grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.